What's going on, folks? Welcome back to yet another episode of In Defense of Liberation, the show that is working towards and educating about a true people's liberation movement and one day soon a true proletarian revolution. But until that day comes, I am your host, Josh, and I would like to say thank you so much for stopping by. So, Uh, I'm coming into this episode a little bit frustrated, so forgive my energy, but, uh, you know, life is, uh, becoming increasingly more difficult as the days go on, as things like the, uh, eviction moratorium loom over us, as, uh, prices are increasing, as wages are stagnating, Um, A lot of us are really fucking dealing with it right now, like really going through it. And I got to say, for myself, I'm very lucky. Um, I have shelter. I have heat. I have food in my fridge. I have health care. I have a job. I have a car. And so I, I definitely can say that I am very lucky. And not only am I very lucky, but I'm very privileged in a in a very real and material way. Not in a, you know, I'm a, a white person and I'm playing the card where I know that I'm woke. So I'm going to say that I'm privileged. So people are like, wow, this person really gets it. No, like I have material privilege. Like I can eat today. Some people can't eat today. It, as much as that has to do with all the different, you know, political and socioeconomic uh, constructs, it's also just a material reality. Um, And so because of that, I definitely try as best as I can, although it is sometimes toxic, uh, the way in which it's pushed forward. I try to be positive uh, because I'm actually a very negative and pessimistic person, very cynical. Um, but one thing that I've really learned in my time since I began, you know, becoming more radicalized, begun, you know, reading more revolutionary theory and, uh, trying as best as I can to get involved in actions and, you know, actual organizing. One thing that I've noticed is that a hope is one of the most important, uh, you know, weapons, uh, in the sense that hope is what convinces people that it's even worth trying. Hope is what convinces people not to just give up. And so I've really been trying to look at what's going on across the world. Um, For example, 6,000 fruit beverage workers at the largest Kenyan uh, factory for these products. I can't recall if there was a company name associated with it, but 6,000 Kenyan workers went on strike yesterday. Um, There's still more going on with this, but, you know, just in general, the event itself is monumental. Uh, Tens of thousands of workers across the country of Kazakhstan uh, went on strike over the course of five, six days, um, which led to uh, freezing of the price of oil led to a uh, stepping down of one of the uh, representatives of the government. It led to the arrest of the former intelligence 
um, officer or intelligence leader, I should say. And uh, it's also led to a lot of different things. Um, there's rumored to have been workers' councils and different uh, community organizations set up to try to govern during the uh, protests and the riots to try to organize people for demonstrations to try to stop the police from uh, shooting at innocent bystanders and at the protesters themselves. Uh, there's, of course, as we know, continuous movements in Colombia. We've talked about that a bit on the show. Um, these uh, protests show quite clearly that, um, you know, all over the world, there is genuine sentiment for uprising. Um, and we have to be careful and we have to really deeply study these uprisings, these rebellions, because as we are seeing in places like uh, Taiwan and Tibet, um, and historically, as we've seen in places all over the world, earlier this year we saw, or excuse me, earlier last year we saw the uh, attempt by U.S. lawmakers and politicians, um, as well as Cuban uh, immigrants who tried to bolster this uh, small, almost insignificant, but I will admit not necessarily insignificant, and we'll hit on that in a second, but this small little protest that broke out in Cuba, I believe it was in uh, June or July of 2021, and, uh, you know, all these different folks, uh, like the Biden administration, demanded that um, you know, the Cuban government stepped down, that they're an authoritarian regime, and that they need to, you know, give their people freedoms and democracy like Americans do. And this was the part of the, the protest that, like, that's when you know that it's a color rev or an attempt at a coup. When those words democracy or liberty or freedom began begun uh, you know, getting waved around in that fashion, it becomes a little bit more likely, at the very least, that outside forces have had some form of an influence on those types of movement. But then, the the reason why I say that there wasn't a total insignificance to this protest is because, as the the president of Cuba even said himself. There is a level of inequality, of poverty, of hunger that is beginning to seep back into the Cuban uh, culture. And he explicitly said that it is the fault of the embargo that the United States has recently re-administered, as well as their re-enlisting as Cu- of Cuba as a harborer of domestic terrorists, as well as sanctions, as well as the general capitalist system, which Cuba has explicitly, for 60 plus years, come out and said that it is the capitalist system that is in fact leading to and creating the contradictions, the inequality, and the suffering that the masses of people in Cuba and around the world, but especially in Latin America and the Caribbean, as they often say, it is 100% the fault 
of the capitalist imperialist system that exploits and oppresses millions for the benefit of the few. This is what is leading to this suffering. The necessity for Cuba to become a tourist location once more, just like uh, in Hawaii, where, uh, you know, people are demanding that you stop traveling in the middle of a pandemic to an occupied country where indigenous peoples are actively demanding that the United States leave. Stop going to Hawaii. Stop it, white Americans. Stop it. Even, you know, in some cases where people are like, you know, they're they're indigenous and, you know, some people might say, we don't always, you know, just want to say that we just need white people out. In a lot of cases, it would probably benefit, and I'm sure they, you know, as they have clearly stated, uh, know that if Americans, and America in general, that's the military, the intelligence agencies, the research uh, departments, all the different ways in which the empire uh, holds uh, grip on the island. Um, If this was all to leave, a majority of the issues that they're facing, they would be able to solve amongst themselves because they have the actual interest and intention to do so. The United States obviously has no intention to care about or tend to the needs of native and indigenous peoples on the island. Look at what happened in Red Hill and how the Navy is continuously trying to cover up the massive oil spill in the main aquifer. This is the true face of capitalism and imperialism for the majority of people. Because sure, do we have nice skyscrapers, shopping malls, cars, uh, you know, dispensaries and all this kind of bullshit that capitalism can get us that we're like, oh, okay, well, you know, I guess, I guess it's not that bad. Or I guess, you know, I'll keep, I'll keep looking for opportunities to get organized, but for now things are all right for me, so I'm not too stressed. The, the reason why these things pop up and exist as they do within the imperial core is the same reason why in ancient Rome and in ancient Greece, if you were Roman or you were Greek and you lived in the main cities and you were, you know, maybe a representative of, uh, you know, a certain, I don't even know, uh, family, you know, or you were a military person and you had a career, Right that you might have said, okay, yeah, you know, a lot of my children, unless they follow in my footsteps or I don't die in war, they're probably going to suffer pretty bad. Um, you know, my, my partner and my, my daughters, right. They're all extremely taken advantage of. Um, if someone were to notice that, right. And be in that level of existence, there's a good chance that they might be like, well, yeah, but like I'm doing pretty good now. So I'll find ways like to try to help them with what I can get. Cause you know, maybe if I, maybe if I really work myself up the ladder and I get a six figure job, then I can get us a better house and put more food in the, you know, the, the pantry and have some more cattle and buy some more slaves. So we'll be good. And and that'll be my approach. Like, that's how a lot of us really are thinking nowadays when we're like, well, 
I'll get a better job. I'll get a degree. I'll, you know, work really hard at my job so that they give me a raise. These are ways in which, you know, we try to convince ourselves that the system in and of itself is worth saving. Now, there's there's two things I'd like to add on to that. First and foremost, you got to survive, right? This isn't a guilt trip. We live in the United States. A majority of our life is very expensive, plainly just because of all the things that we require to live life. Like, for example, in my city where I live, there isn't really many jobs. So right now, I have to drive 30 minutes to my job which means that I have to have a car. There's no public transport. There's no, you know, walkable jobs. And there's also no apartments in the city that I can afford where I'm working. So there's a difficulty here that does exist because Western imperial core nations try to propel this idea of prosperity, right? You got to have the car, you got to have the house, you got to have everything, right? And so because of that, a lot of us cash checks that we don't got money in the bank for. A lot of us are living on loans, you know, whether that's student loans, car loans, housing loans. And so recognizing this is one of the most crucial points to understanding how in the imperial core, we can get people to really become aware of these things. Because you can't necessarily walk up to a person who's, you know, a physical therapist or a gym coach or, I don't know, uh, I don't know. You can't walk into these middling class (laughs) communities and be like, listen, We are exploited. We are oppressed. The ruling class is taking advantage of us. We can't eat. We can't sleep. We can't find shelter because people are going to be confused because they're going to be like, I'm on my way to church, dog. (laughs) But anyways, we have to find ways to live our life and also find ways to capitalize on this reality to propagandize to people in a maybe different fashion than you might to more, uh, you know, deeply entrenched working class or lumpen proletariat uh, folks. At the same time, we have to understand that uh, a majority of these supposed middle class folks across the world, not just here in the West, in the U.S., but a majority of these people really aren't living at large like they think they are. Like I said, Um, A good majority of folks, 20, 30, 40, that's all either their parents' money or a loan. So when factories start going on strike, when uh, urban cities begin uh, getting blockaded by resistance groups, when indigenous people start shutting off power grids and pipelines and taking over land, uh, and when oppressed and exploited people in this nation finally get sick and tired of watching the uh, what Howard Zinn calls the prison guards, both literally and figuratively, uh, 
the pigs, right? The pig class, as George Jackson talks about it in Blood in My Eye. The pig class that becomes uh, part and parcel of the big bourgeoisie, what we might hear called the petty bourgeoisie. Um, These groups of individuals who benefit uh, from living within the imperial core uh, that really will oftentimes side with the ruling class out of a uh, sincere interest in the benefits that come from the capitalist system because these are individuals who are able to enjoy uh, some benefits from this system in a way that, you know, a majority of people across the world, say in the global south, uh, do not get to enjoy. So this labor aristocracy really serves its role as like uh, a Switzerland or a Netherlands in between, you know, the iron curtain of the revolutionaries and radicals across the global south and the, uh, you know, democratic veil that covers the capitalist and imperialist system. This uh, reality is something that a lot of people in the United States forget. You know, there's all this discourse on patriotic socialism, on this idea of, you know, what a revolution in the United States would even look like. Would we be able to have such a thing as, you know, the United Soviet Socialist States of America? And I think that as Marxists, right, and as true revolutionaries, one of the most crucial things that we need to recognize is that the class which is most likely to be able to inflict damage on this system and change it in a fashion that would lead to not only a temporary band-aid fix of these issues, but a true end to the contradictions that exist today between, say, uh, poor and wealthy folks, or black, brown, indigenous, Asian, and white folks. Uh, This racialized system that completely obfuscates something as absurd as someone's skin color, and in doing so, Uh, designates them to a certain box, to a certain character. And that character ultimately is on a hierarchy where whoever is making that judgment is quite usually the one placing themselves on top. So in this sense, I think it's important to remember that race, although, you know, the most cleverly liberal thing to say is that it is a social construct. Race plays a material role in the reality that we live in. Being non-white changes your life. People have to get that shit through their head. Being an indigenous person in a settler colonial society changes some things. And it would be pretty, shall I say, unlikely that this group of people, indigenous folks especially, but also other exploited and oppressed people, would have any fucking interest 
and your patriotic socialism. Who gives a shit about appealing to the white working class who wants to wave an American flag and have Confederate, you know, uh, tendencies? Who gives a shit about appealing to the Christians who want to repeal women's rights to their own body? Who want to appeal people's rights to live in the bodies and live the lives that they themselves deserve to live as human beings? I don't give, honestly, two single fucks about appealing to these people because here's the really cool thing. They're not going to do anything to help. You want to know how I know? What are they doing to help right now? These people, these liberals, these Democrats, right, who say that they're so aware of the situation that they truly care that their heart goes out, right? What are they doing? Actually, materially, not what are they saying, not what are they posting on social media, not what speeches are they giving, not what kind of rhetoric and, uh, you know, posturing are they putting forward. What material changes are these individuals implementing in their own communities, in their representative positions, in the legislative bodies that they belong to? Because you know what Republicans are doing? Submitting over a hundred bills in the last year to increase the amount of voter suppression on a state-to-state level. I'm thinking of Florida. I'm thinking of South Dakota. I'm thinking of Texas. And I'm thinking of even, uh, in some cases, New York. Now, what else are they doing? They're electing representatives that do not actually uh, benefit, first and foremost, the working class or have any connection to the working class. How can someone like Eric Adams, let's talk about it. How can someone like Eric Adams be elected the mayor in New York City after the last three years that has happened? I'll tell you why. For the same reason that in the period of time when this country was most conscious and upright about the need to change the policing system, we get a former attorney general as a vice president. A former attorney general, I'll have you, who spent a majority of their career locking people up for minor nonviolent crimes. Because in this country, the mass incarceration central of the world, we need prisoners for tax revenue, for private corporations like the security companies, the food vendors, the uh, temp agencies, the prison agent corporations, the private prison companies and owners themselves, I will tell you why right now we have more police, more pigs in government than we've ever had in the last, you know, 20, 30, 40, 50 years of, you know, supposed representative politics. It's because in the last 30 to 40 to 50 years, we have had these supposed representative politics. We've done this multiple times. I'm thinking in the 1600s 
when we had some of the first, you know, women in, in small circumstances throughout the 16 and 1700s. We had women from, you know, colonizing backgrounds who were given the ability to govern. Oh, hoorah, right? Then in the 1800s, you know, you started to allow immigrants. Immigrants could have these positions. And then in the late 1800s, for a very brief moment, right? But then came reaction. For a very brief moment after the Civil War and what is known as Reconstruction, you had some of the most radical, revolutionary, and representative politics this country has ever had. You had former slaves in government positions demanding true, true uh, retribution and true, um, you know, repayment and reconciliation, although that's not a great word, reparations for what had been done to not just black folks, but you had black folks in government who were actually advocating to stop the further expansion West. You had some that were doing the opposite, but that's not really important considering the fact that just about all of them were fucking killed. Because in this country, the founding of this country, you have an underwritten law, which folks like Ida B. Wells write about in her papers and her studies on lynching, which folks like, you know, uh, American Indian Movement, the Black Panthers, and plenty of others before them showed clearly to the United Nations, to the Supreme Court, to the working white class of people, of immigrants as well, even, of other oppressed folks. And through all of that, people have learned. People have suffered. They've struggled. And they've learned that just by someone's skin color or supposed representation it does not change the world material reality changes through active and intentional change think about if we were to do an experiment right I want to find out what happens if I put this liquid into this liquid, stir it at this heat, and put a cap on it. You can write out the chemical makeups of each compound. You can theorize mathematically, scientifically. Given the character of these compounds and their response to the environment what would most likely happen. But you will never know. And you will never learn if you are mistaken, if you do not do it. And as folks like Jay Mufawad Paul speak about, but also... Uh, black, brown, and indigenous radicals and revolutionaries for years have said quite clearly 
the white working class's ability in the United States to understand the system, to understand how it is oppression works, to understand how unions and other forms of struggle can uh, allow for collective bargaining and for, you know, beneficial gains. Um, but when it comes down to <clears throat> historically, these groups of white working class individuals applying that to also the oppressed and exploited marginalized communities context is not always something that happens. Um, There are a lot of, you know, shall we say, revolutionary uh, white working class groups that have existed in this country that have done a poor job, to put it simply. We could say advocated and actively uh, accepted the settler colonial practice of uh, genocide, uh, dehumanization, and disclusion and alienation of marginalized groups in favor of their, you know, ruling class. But I guess we could keep it simple and say they did a poor job of making sure that, you know, uh, black, brown, and indigenous people, women and non-men, uh, as well as immigrants, were actively capable of uh, also uh, seeking the benefits that these different uh, developments were able to temporarily gain for some uh, groups and trades. So, kind of in closing here, because I don't really have too much more time, um, Folks, I'm going to go check out this last episode I put up with Henry Huckamacki from um, Guerrilla History Podcast. It was a really good episode. I really enjoyed it. I hope folks will uh, also enjoy it. Let us know what you think. Let us know um, any topics you'd like, you know, maybe us to go over in another episode or, you know, maybe other guests you'd like to see me have on. Uh, maybe you can uh, do me a favor and bug old, old Brett from uh uh rev left radio and uh get him to uh come on the show and and talk with me because that would be a dream come true uh brett uh for those of you who don't know you should check out revolutionary left radio and also you should check out uh red menace podcast as well as gorilla history podcast uh which are three shows that he is on Brett, I would say, is probably one of the most uh, critical thinking podcasters right next to his co-host, Allison Escalante and uh, Henry and Adnan Hussein. Uh, He's one of the most critical, like, revolutionary podcast uh, thinkers in the sense that So I started listening to him two years ago and I'd like started at his very first episodes and I've listened to just about every episode. Listening to his development and the ideas that he has in his head and the ways that he's able to comprehensively explain them to people. And I'm talking about on every subject. This homie's out here talking about, you know, 
eco-socialism and, uh, you know, forestry and planting. And then he's talking with Nick Estes with, uh, you know, the history of the American uh, Indian movement. That was one of the most incredible series that he did. And then he's on Red Menace talking about this incredible revolutionary theory like, you know, state and revolution, pedagogy of the oppressed, uh, decolonial feminism, uh, and speaking to people like Comrade Bridget and Comrade Esperanza um, on the sex trade. And then he's talking about, you know, the religion and and dialectical deep dives and and talking about uh, revolts in the, you know, early medieval times. And uh, Henry also recently did that on guerrilla history, the Peasant Revolt of 1381, which I thought was a really interesting episode. But anyways... Brett is a dude that can do it all. And so, honestly, that's someone I'd love to have on the show. But anyways, if you haven't already, please go listen to my last episode with Henry Huckamacki from uh, Gorilla History Podcast because the things that I want to finish this episode with is something that I have continuously been stressing for us. And I know that, uh, to some extent, uh, it might seem... I don't know. I'm a, I, I create content, but I don't always really center topics. I don't always, you know, do a whole bunch of research so that I can basically give you this presentation. Um, a lot of times I just kind of talk about what's on my mind. And one of the things that is always on my mind, which I'm always stressing, is the need to organize. But I think that if this pandemic could have taught us anything... I would hope that it would have taught us that, in fact, this shit is not going to get solved by our government and by the state that exists today in the West and across the world. It is, holy shit, so clear that they do not give a fuck about us. And, you know, not only do they not give a fuck about us, because I think it's important to understand that, like, okay, yeah, we can sit around and be like, these people don't give a shit, da-da-da-da-da. But we got to explain to people so that they don't think that it's just these politicians that are in office now that are assholes, but in fact that it's impossible for the capitalist system to produce a ruling class that has more interest in the working class's benefits and, you know, livelihood than it does its own. We have to do a better job of getting people to understand that. And the best way to do that is twofold through educating ourselves and through getting involved in movements, in organizations, and in community, you know, uh, groups, organizations that uh, are, you know, down, that are actively, you know, putting in work to help people. Um, Not just saying that these are the things that are wrong, but showing people how to do something about it. And these two things kind of go hand in hand in a real, you know, dialectical fashion because one builds the other. The more that you involve yourself, the more that you struggle, the more that you organize, the more that you will learn. And the more that you can teach others and the more that you will be able to get involved because of the uh, meetings and relationships that you will develop. And the more that you will be able to learn Uh, from your mistakes, from certain ideas that you had that might have been wrong, from certain experiences you go through. And on top of all of that, 
the more connections you make, the more people you can help. Uh, I help out with a community fridge. And one thing that we're learning is the more community outreach we do, the more food we have in that fridge, the more volunteers we've had, and the more fridge locations we're able to have. We recently had one of the local mosques reach out to us and offer to place a fridge in their uh, community room so that uh, people could come inside to get food, especially during the winter. Um, and that's, you know, a year after we've been doing this fridge in one location. Now we have a second location, hopefully. And so that's one thing that I want to stress to people is it's time consuming. It can be maybe it, it can seem irrelevant. You know, I write emails all day, every day. I will tell you that one thing I do, I'm reaching out to people on social media and I'm writing emails all day, every day. Even while I'm at work, I have someone I'm trying to email right now. If, if it is seeming insignificant, we have to put it in perspective, right? So I was talking in a reading circle I was doing last night about the fact that one thing that the United States didn't do, and a lot of countries in the West didn't do in handling the pandemic, was a mass outreach campaign to educate people about virology in general. How do viruses work? How do they spread? What is their nature? What do they exist for? How long do they exist for? How do they you know, keep themselves alive? What are antibodies? What are vaccines? How do they work? How does a virus take hold of your body and mutate itself? How does it, you know, um, learn to uh, fight these vaccines and, and grow in strength? How does it, you know, fight herd immunity? And it also didn't teach us anything about handling a pandemic. So meaning that, okay, we wear our masks and we get our vaccines, but if we're still going to concerts and going to Walmart and going to the movies and going out to the mall and going over here and going over there and going over here and going over there every single fucking day, as hard as it is, right? I have friends. I have shit that I want to do. I can't do it because I'm terrified. I'm terrified of giving my grandparents a disease that would kill them. I'm terrified of giving my niece and nephew a disease that would kill them. I'm terrified of getting sick myself. You know, people are misunderstanding that this is a respiratory disease. This is a vascular disease, meaning it is regenerative, meaning that it will exist in your system for long term and lead to long term brain, uh, heart, uh, uh, you know, circular and, and, and all or not circular, um, circulation problems with your blood and everything. This is going to do more damage than just to your lungs. It can create long-term brain diseases. It can lodge onto your lungs and create an inability for your lungs to break down mucus for the rest of your life. It gave my friend a heart palpitation that is not in any part of his family. He had two vaccines, was going to get the booster, and now he has a heart palpitation. If we do not shut this shit down, if we do not learn why we have to shut this shit down, if we do not learn to care about one another enough to shut this shit down, and if we don't learn that our government is absolutely refusing 
to shut this shit down. Why and what that means and what to do about it then we are going to continue to see as millions, because right now there are one million plus positive COVID cases in the United States. As millions more people become infected, millions more people will die. And I'm talking in the global South, not here in America, because right now the assholes that are refusing to wear masks, that are refusing to get their vaccine, that are refusing to stay home, that are not taking this seriously, that haven't taken this seriously, they are not getting sick. They are not the ones dying. Not saying that they should be, but what I am saying is the fact that people who are taking this seriously, right? People with what are called comorbidities are being eugenicized. This is one thing that's being talked about explicitly in the disabled community is the fact that right now eugenics is actively being practiced by the United States and the Western governments of the world. They're saying, oh, well, these people had comorbidities, so of course they're going to die. Two people in China in 2021 died from COVID. Two people right now in the Xi'ang region where 126 people tested positive in a few days. The entire region got locked down. They got food getting handed out. They got PPE getting handed out. They got people checking temperatures, checking uh, COVID tests, asking what folks need. They got people hooking up Wi-Fi. They got people hooking up electricity and heat. They got people building hospitals. That took decades. Because in 2004... There was a SARS outbreak in China that they were not ready for. One of the uh, uh, members of PSL Chicago came on to talk about this on By Any Means Necessary. Go check that episode out because I don't want to steal his thunder. But what I'm trying to say is when I was talking with the homies last night, I was saying this takes grueling and what seems like insignificant effort and work for a long period of time to build connections, to build consciousness, to build organizations, and to build solidarity. Because right now, we don't care about each other. We do, right? Enough to post on Facebook about it. But not enough to go right next door to the apartment right next to you and ask your neighbor if they need anything. Hmm. I'm no better than anyone. That's all I gotta say. I'm doing a lot less than I should be. And a lot of that has to do personally with, uh, like, just genuine uh, lacking motivation and depression uh, that I'm blaming on, you know, pre-existing trauma and anxiety. But also uh, the pandemic. People really need to give credit to ourselves. Like, we are going through one of the most traumatizing experiences. Um, And sure, are we quite privileged here in the West to be going through it with the things that we are going through it with? Yes, but people are still dying, suffering, and being traumatized daily. I really am not active because, unfortunately, anywhere that I want to be active, I got to, you know, drive. There's only a few organizations around me. And uh, I would hope pretty soon that I'm going to start doing the due diligence of knocking on my neighbor's doors Um But I've been experiencing one, uh, my heat went out recently, then my partner totaled their car. And uh, so we've been dealing with some things. And so uh, I'm hoping now that, uh, you know, things are getting real cold, that um, I'm going to find the motivation to really be 
getting in touch with my neighbors because that's one thing that I think each of us can do. Um, reach out to your friends. Reach out to people you went to school with. Reach out to your family members you don't talk to recently and just fucking talk to them, you know? Go over sometime if you can, if folks are vaccinated and you can stay safe. Um, it's uh, it's about the humanity. It's about the community that we got to build. And so that's a long process. But if we don't start now, we're going to be that much further behind when we really need it. Like right now, we really needed it. We really needed community and solidarity and working class organizations and neighborhood and community or, uh, you know, watch groups and safety groups and food distribution and testing locations. But we don't have that. And so we have to build it. And it's going to take time. But if we don't do anything, it's not going to change. And people's minds won't change if we just keep telling them that things will change, but we don't show them what that change look like, looks like or show them how they themselves can be a part of that change. So I challenge myself and everybody else to really get organizing. Uh, if that means reaching out to your local organization and saying, hey, can I put up posters for you? Can I call some local representatives for you? Can I, you know, write letters to any prisoners? Can I write letters to governors? Can I write letters to oil companies? Can I, uh, you know, transport anybody? Can I drop off food? Can I share information on social media? Can I, you know, whatever. And doing that at an individual level is great. But the more that we are able to connect these individual, uh, you know, people and uh, movements to grounded organizations and other individuals and movements across the country, the stronger we get. So, you know, honestly, one thing that I found is just about anybody who's a content creator that you like, if you reach out to them, they will eventually respond. Um, Of course, not like you know, Jake Paul and shit, but who, I mean, if you're listening to this and you want to talk to Jake Paul, dude, (laughs) I mean, I guess, I guess it would be funny to talk to Jake Paul, but anyways, (laughs) um, yeah, so reach out to people, send letters, send emails, send DMs on social media as weird and awkward as it is. I've made some really cool friends because of social media during this pandemic and they're in reading circles with me and they're talking about building revolutionary organizations in their area and getting involved in, you know, activism and stuff. And that wasn't happening a year ago for any of us. So, you know what I'm saying? Like get involved however you can. But anyways, folks, I hope everybody is well. I hope everybody is staying safe. Stay home. Get your booster if you can. Get your flu vaccine if you can, if you trust the science, if you know, you can get behind your local doctors who may or may not have caused some trauma. Um, a lot of folks are dealing with a lot of complications and contradictions behind the vaccine and stuff like that. So I understand that um, it's really not up to us to come down on individuals because realistically, who's that going to change? Um, but we have to attack the system and we have to build a new system. We have to build what's called dual power, which is a system that exists within a system that is trying to advocate and objectively show how uh, another system is necessary because this system is not working. 
But anyways, I hope you stay well, stay safe, stay revolutionary, and we will see you next time. Peace out, folks.